Good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, and if you don't mind, we're just going to jump right into things. This is the time uh, in our service together where we open up God's Word to a particular passage. We read it, uh, we teach through it, and we trust God by His Spirit to do what only He can do. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you'd open them up to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, that is fine. Uh, right behind each section of chairs, there are some tray tables with Bibles on them. Feel free to jump up and grab one. Um, you can use that this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please keep it. Uh, let it be our gift to you this morning. Uh, but we are going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and then we're going to make some sense out of some things in the chapters that preceded it. But if you're a guest with, this morning with us, let me just kind of fill you in a little bit on what's happening. Uh, normally, we take time, uh, a month or two months or three months, and we've been known to take a year before, to take one particular book of the Bible and to work our way through it thought by thought, trying to understand what God was saying to his people then and what God is saying to his people now, trying to understand the thrust of that book and, and how it transforms us. And, and this year we're doing something a little bit different. We are taking the entire Bible. So instead of looking at one book particularly, we're looking at the one story all 66 books of the Bible together tell, uh, the story of God's redemption. And so if you've never actually seen how the Bible in and of itself, all 66 books and all the collections of stories that maybe you've heard before, you learned in Sunday school as a kid, or you have vague familiarity with, if you've never understood how together they all tell one singular story, what the one singular story of the Bible is, God's great story and drama of redemption, uh, this will be an eye-opening year for you. Our hope is that by God's grace, as we work our way through the bigger picture of the Bible, uh, that it will all begin to click. Uh, the story will begin to make sense. The Bible will no longer be this disjuncted collection of, of books and letters and poems and stories and genealogies, but together you'll be able to see how it all tells the one story of God's grace, the story of God's redemption. And that's what we're doing this year. So if you're a guest with us this morning, fantastic. You're jumping right in. Let me catch you up on the big picture of what's happened. We've seen from the beginning God in his infinite might and power and wisdom was the creator of all things. Before anything existed, God simply spoke, and what didn't exist came into existence. And we saw God set his affection, his attention on a particular people, and he promised this people to be their God and for them to be his people. And we've kind of watched the story unfold of how God has committed himself to this people, this people we know now as Israel, how he's given himself to them, how he's proven faithful to his promises for them, how he's rescued them, even in their rebellion, out of a serious slavery to Egypt they had spent 400 years in under oppression and rule, how he rescued them by his grace and through his might out of slavery, delivered them out into the wilderness and then led them in the wilderness and guided them in the wilderness, gave them directions and provisions for how they could live in his midst and how he could live in their midst in the midst of the wilderness, how together, even in his holiness and their sinfulness, he could still commit himself to them, gave them these regulations of grace, fed them miraculously with bread from heaven, gave them water out of a rock as they traveled brought them to the edge of the land that he had promised his forefa their forefathers. And now, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, God has made good on that promise, and he has led his people now into the land to which he had promised. A new generation, a new leader, new children of God, new Israel is now in the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Last week in the book of Judges, we looked at how that went for them. We saw a little snapshot of the first 200 years in the land of milk and honey, and it didn't go so well for Israel. Now, things didn't work out so well for them due to the hardness and the deceitfulness of sin that was in their hearts. But what we saw is that God relentlessly, if you remember this from last week, 
God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it, people who don't seek it, and people who don't appreciate it, even after they've been rescued by it. And we've seen God's redemptive grace continue to be at work in the life of Israel. In the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to pick up on the timeline at the tail end of the period of Judges. So the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel are kind of the tail end of this season of the book of Judges that we looked at last week. And this book is going to narrate for us the transition in the life of Israel from the period of the Judges, from the, the kind of the rule of the Judges, how God would raise up a deliverer in a particular place and deliver a particular part of his people in a particular time from the bondage that they were in because of their sin. That we're going to transition out of this time of the Judges and into the time of Kings into now rule by kings. And the book of 1 Samuel is going to be dominated by three people, Samuel, Saul, and David. Those are going to be the three primary figures that, that you see throughout this book. And we're going to take a couple of weeks to work our way through the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and you'll kind of see that. But this morning, we're going to look at that transition, that transition from judges to kings, and, and more particular, what's behind that transition. And I want you to know from the beginning this morning, from the outset, that this message this morning, this this section of God's word, uh, it is a merciful warning to God's people. One of the greatest gifts of God's grace to his people is oftentimes to warn them of what's going on in our hearts, to remind us of his holiness, and not just to speak his word of grace, but to remind us of who we are and to remind us of who he really is. This morning is a merciful word of warning to God's people. And if I could sum it up in, in one phrase for you to get the picture of what we'll see, here it is. Just because you get what you want, it doesn't always mean you have what you need. Just because you get what you want, it doesn't always mean you have what you need. So if you've got your Bibles open, 1 Samuel chapter 8, let's read the entire chapter together. And let me just tell you what we're going to do. We're going to read it out loud. I just want you to hear it. And this morning, the, the word tells us uh, throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, the book of Psalms in particular, that God's word is like a mirror to God's people. And this morning, I want, as we read God's word, for you to let it speak to you and show you your own heart. It's not a complicated text. The things we'll look at this morning, they're not hard to understand. They're stories. They're, they narrate the life of God's people. And in a sense, even though we're centuries removed from Israel here, they narrate your life. They narrate the realities of your heart. And I want you to let the word of God serve as a mirror to you this morning as we hear what's going on in the life of God's people. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, just listen and follow along as we read through this. When Samuel became old, he made his son judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them their way, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. 
So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and he'll give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he'll put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The people, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. A man named Donald McCullough, who had been a pastor for years and then a president of a seminary in the early 90s, wrote a book. The title of the book was The Trivialization of God. And there have been numerous statements he made in that book that have stuck with me over the years. But this one in particular came to my mind this week as I was reading and studying this. This is what Donald McCullough said. He said, this has always been the temptation and the failure for the people of God. Pagan gods have caused less trouble for God's people than the tendency to refashion God into a more congenial and serviceable God. And the greatest temptation and the greatest failure of God's people has always been and always will be the temptation to trivialize God, to disregard God. Webster's defines disregard as to pay no attention to, to leave out of consideration, to ignore to treat without due respect or attentiveness or to slight. And this is exactly what Israel is doing. They have come to a place in their lives and in their heart where they have trivialized God. They have made him into a more serviceable and manageable deity. And in their trivialization of God, they have now disregarded God and his glory and his holiness and his authority to the utmost degree. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be just like everyone else. Now give us a king to rule over us. And did you hear what God said? In Samuel's frustration when he runs to God, and he says, can you hear what they're saying, God? God said, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king. Israel already had a king. They already had a king who ruled over them, who went out to battle for them, who fought for them, who protected them who gave them laws and regulations in such a manner that other nations would look at them and say, what kind of nation is this that has a God like this that gives them such just and fair laws and rules? They already had the kind of king they needed, but they had managed to disregard God for so long now in their hearts. Trivialize God to such an infinitely micromanageable detail. But now they just simply want to be like everyone else. 
Before we walk through the rest of chapter 8 and look at this warning that God gives his people, not just here, but gives you and I, and what is actually being said here, I want us just to flip back a little bit in 1 Samuel. I want you to see some of the snapshots of, of how Israel's disregard for God and trivialization of God had grown. I want you to see how this disregard, this trivialization had been cultivated in the hearts and in the lives of the people of God. They got them to such a place where they could look at God and say, now we need a king. Now we need someone who will actually fight for us. Now we need someone who will actually rule over us. Now we need someone who will actually judge over us. We don't have that. Give us what everybody else has. How had they come to such a degree to disregard who God was for them and what God had done for them? Flip back to chapter 2. I wish we could, again, put it on the list of sermon series. I wish we could just stop and tell you and preach through all these stories. But let me just give you a couple snapshots. Chapter 2, verse 12. I want you just to see the context. What's going on? How has this disregard grown? Where does it come from? Chapter 2, verse 12. Eli was priest uh, in Israel at the time. and Verse 12 says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord or for the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. Listen to this. When any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling, and he would plunge it into the container or the kettle or the cauldron or the cooking pot. Now, you remember the time we spent in the Advent season looking through the book of Leviticus and the sacrifices that God had given his people, the role of the sacrifices, the details of the sacrifices. And so here now, the, the priest's servant is going, and while the people would bring an offering, and it's say like a peace offering, where they would bring an animal to be sacrificed, and the sacrifice would take place, and a portion of the meat was to be given back to the people to share amongst each other as a fellowship offering. And here's what would happen. The priest would send one of his servants in with a fork and go to that meat that was supposed to be for the people. The meat that God had set aside in this sacrifice for God's people to share as a fellowship offering because of God's grace and mercy. And he'd have his servant dip a a, a three-pronged fork into this pot. And the priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. And this is the way they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Verse 15, even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and he would say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if that man said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no. I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. And so the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Sacrifices, the great display of God's holiness, the great display of God's glory, and the great display of God's mercy to his people, now the leaders of God's people. The priests have begun to treat the Lord's mercy, treat the Lord's holiness with contempt. Old translations will say they found themselves kicking against God's sacrifices, kicking against the regulations that were there, and now they were robbing from God's people the portion that God had set aside for them, and they were robbing from God the portion that God had designated for himself. They were saying, give us this raw before it gets set aside to the fire. And that piece of fat, that portion that was supposed to be burnt on the altar for the Lord, they'll give it to us before we actually go and do that. We're going to keep that for ourselves. Even the people are looking at the priest going, you can't do that. That's not your job. That's not what God had said. Go and and burn what you're supposed to burn and then just keep whatever you want. We don't even care at this point, but don't take God's. No. Give us what we want right now or we'll take it by force. And the priests were treating the Lord's offerings 
God's grace and God's holiness with such contempt. And they didn't feel it worthy of their respect. They felt tied to it and obligated to it. And the priests weren't openly serving other gods. They weren't building altars to Baal. They weren't erecting Asherah poles in the middle of the tabernacle. No, they weren't serving other gods, but they were certainly now treating the one true God as though he was simply one of the other worthless deities out on a hill somewhere in Canaan. And this is what's going on in the life of the religious leaders of God's people. It gets a shade worse. Look at verse 22. It says, now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Not only are they treating God's glory, God's holiness, God's mercy with contempt, robbing God's people of that which God had set aside for them, treating his sacrifices with such great disregard, uh, they're physically treating God's people with the same kind of disregard and the same kind of contempt, taking advantage of women who would come and serve in the tabernacle. Oh, that's a detestable thing. Verse 23, Eli hears of what his sons are doing, and he goes out to rebuke them. Now, here we go. Rescue us, Eli. Verse 23, he said to them, well, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. Now, my sons, the report I hear from the Lord's people is not good. If a man sins against another man, God can intercede for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Mm, what a horrible sentence. But they would not listen to their father. And since the Lord had intended to kill them. And they had no respect for their dad. No respect for him as their dad. No respect for his authority as a priest. And even in his rebuke of his sons, Eli was honest. The report's not good. What I've heard from God's people, it's not good. He's honest. Too gentle. And you see in the story, Eli is going to be judged by God. He and his entire household of priests. Look at verse 27. A man of God came to Eli and he said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestral house when it was in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I selected your house to be priests, to offer sacrifices on my altars, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. Don't you get what I did for you? How have you gotten to the place where you have disregarded my grace to you and my call to you to such a high degree and led my people into such contempt for my mercy? I also gave your house all the Israelite fire offerings. I made provision for you in the middle of this. You wouldn't have to go out and work like everyone else in the fields. Their sacrifices, I was going to set a portion aside to take care of you and your house. I called you. I've loved you. I've taken care of you. Verse 29, why then do all of you, not just you, Eli, you, your sons, the priests, why do all of you despise my sacrifices, my offerings that I require at the place of worship? Here's the kicker. You've honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people, Israel. And there's the real problem. And Eli honored his sons above God. And what particular thing did God use to show him just how far he had honored his sons above God? And we saw that Eli was making himself fat off the offering too. Even as his sons were guilty of frauding God's people, disregarding God's offering, stealing from God's people and stealing from God, Eli was eating some fat too. Eli was benefiting from his son's disregard. 
And what we see over time is that Eli indulged his sons. And in indulging his sons, he only served to harden their hearts even more. In indulging them with his soft words, his blind eye, and his participation in their sin, all he did, all he served to do was to harden their heart and maximize their disregard for God. I love Matthew Henry, a great Puritan pastor. He said Eli would have rather seen God's honor disgraced before his own sons. He was more sensitive to his son's reputation than to God's. And Eli was quicker to humor his sons rather than honor God. The greatest temptation and failure for God's people has always been, and it remains today, the refashioning of God into a more manageable deity, the trivialization or the disregard for God. When the priests had disregarded the holiness of God, the glory of God, the grace of God offered in the sacrifices, and when God can be seen as that insignificant, when God can be seen as that trivial, when God can be seen and treated with that little respect, Katie barred the doors. Everyone will do what seems right in his own eyes. Now this is a very sober warning and picture. In particular, if we really want to narrow it down, for those that God calls to a particular leadership in his church. The abuse of authority, the abuse of privilege, the abuse of power, it is a detestable thing in the eyes of God. And it will not go unjudged. God will not pass over those that he puts in a place to lead his people, to recognize his grace, to love his glory, to serve him with their whole heart. He will not look past those who take that privilege, take that authority, and take that responsibility and use it to lord it over the people. It is a detestable thing in God's eyes, and he will judge it. In fact, in the New Testament, we get great warnings for those that would have any aspiration to be leaders in the church. Just don't desire this too quickly. Don't want too much of this too fast. Because you need to realize when the day comes, you're going to have a stricter judgment before the Lord. This is a sober warning for all of us who are pastors. All of those who God will call into this place of privilege, really, to serve God's people and understanding God and trusting God and treasuring God. It's a sober warning it doesn't just deal with the priests. There are some problems with the people, too. Look at chapter 4. Let me just move on in these snapshots. Chapter 4, look at verse 1. Now, Israel's going to go out to battle with the Philistines. And they've encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines have encamped at Aphek. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Ah, Here's the solution. Here's the solution to the problem. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. Shiloh was a central place of worship at the time in, in Israel, now that they were in the Promised Land. Let's go down to Shiloh. Let's grab the Ark. Remember the Ark from our study of the tabernacle? Remember the role of the ark in the life of God's people that stayed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? The ark that lived in the one place where only one person could go one time a year because the glory of the Lord descended and dwelled and was enthroned on top of it? Let's go get that. 
Let's, let's go grab it. That's the answer. Look at this. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. There we go. And so the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. I want to know who went into the Holy of Holies and grabbed that thing. Somebody had to go get it. Now, I want to know that. Who had the nerve at this point to go in and grab it? But it just shows you. It just shows you the disregard. The trivialization of who God is and what he's done at this point in the life of Israel. They, they go in and they get it. And they sent people to Shiloh and they brought from there the ark of the Lord, covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, we've already heard about these guys, Hophni and Phinehas, they were there with the ark of the covenant of God. We've already heard about those two characters. Here they are with the ark. They know the ark more than anybody. They know the role of the ark. And here come the people saying, we've lost a battle. Let's get the ark. Let's bring it up here. And they're Hophni and Phinehas. They're the priests. Okay. Let's go in and grab it. Let's take it up there. And again, you've got to think, in real life, real time, human, it had to seem a little bit reasonable to them. I mean, they'd heard the stories of Jericho, right? What happened with Jericho? They had horns, and they had preachers, and they had the ark. They marched around it seven times. God said, time's done. Blow the horns and yell, and the city wall is going to fall. And they do. Well, here they just got defeated by the Philistines. Well, you know what? Let's go get the ark. We got preachers. I'm sure they've got horns. It worked once. Let's go get it again. So you've got to think, to some degree, when you've trivialized God to such a a, a micromanageable deity, it's got to make sense to you that you just go grab it. Let's just treat it like a charm. Go get the holy thing. Bring it up here. We'll make a bunch of it, and then we'll get what we actually want. Look at verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Yay! The Ark's here. The box is here. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? And these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. You've got to admire verse 9, though. Take courage and be men. O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Verse 10, the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What happens when God becomes trivialized? What happens? What happens when God, what happens when Jesus, what happens when the gospel becomes no more valuable to you than a, a good luck charm that helps you get what you want when you want it? I mean, this is how the people, this is how the priests viewed the Ark of the Covenant. I wish we had time to talk about what actually happened next. That's a great story. If you've never read it, take some time. God will not allow his glory to be trivialized like this. Philistines capture the Ark. They destroy the Israelites. The men run. Thousands are slaughtered. They take the Ark, the place where the glory of God dwelled. And they take it back to their place. And they stick it in the sanctuary of their god, Dagon. Have you ever read this story? 
Dagon's in there in the middle of his sanctuary, and they take the Ark of God, and they just put it right there next to Dagon. The next morning, when they go into the sanctuary, what do they find? Dagon's face down before the Ark of God. Well, that's a curious thing. They pick him back up. Next day comes, they go into the sanctuary, and what's Dagon doing? He's face down next to the Ark of God, except this time, his head and his hands are cut off, and they're on the threshold next to the Ark. I mean, give the Philistines some credit. They realize at this point they're dealing with something that they have no conception of. At the same time, the story tells us that the hand of God was heavy upon the Philistines there in Asherah, where the town was, where the sanctuary for Dagon was. And give them some credit. They go, you know what? This God, he's causing some trouble. Well, the best thing that they can think of to do is just to send him to another city. So they just bounce him from city to city to city. And the story tells us that the hand of God was heavy on the Philistines wherever they had sent the ark. And you get to this great point when finally they just come to the end. Like, we can't deal with this anymore. We can't deal with this God anymore. Let's just send him back to where he came from. And in fact, they call their priests and they call their sorcerers together, their wise men together. And they say, what do we do? And it's a curious thing that they offer. They say, send him back to the Israelites, but send him back with a guilt offering too. And they come up with their own offering to send back to the Israelites along with the Ark of the Covenant. Great story, but we've got to pick it up in chapter 6. Poor Israel. Chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. Now the Philistines decided that to make sure that this really was the doings of the God that was part of this ark, they put the ark on a cart drawn by untrained cows, unyoked cows. If this really is the God that's causing the problems, those cows can go exactly where they need to go. They don't need anybody to train them. They don't need anybody to take them in particular. So they set this ark and this sacrifice on this cart with these cows, and they sent them out. And sure enough, what happens is these cows make their way straight back to where they need to be. And this is what's happening here. They look up. The people of God reaping in the field. They've lost the ark. They've lost the battles. Ark's gone. There's no hope for them at this point of ever seeing that thing again. But what difference does that make when it's just a little box you, you haul out whenever you want it? But here they are, they open up their eyes in the middle of this harvest, and here it comes on a cart with these cows. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, of Beth Shemesh, and it stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. It seems good so far, right? And the Levites, they took down the ark. You're the priests, the pastors. They took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which the golden figure, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon a great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Look down at verse 19. But God struck down the men of Beth Shemesh. Hold on. Wait. There's the ark. Celebrated. Offered sacrifices. Worship the Lord. Sound good so far, right? Why did God strike down the men of Beth Shemesh, though? Because they looked inside of the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 men out of 50,000 men. And the people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of this holy Lord God? Who should the ark go to from here? Again, seems reasonable, right? Ark's been stolen by your arch enemies. Who knows what they did with it, right? 
Who knows what happened to the ark of God when it was in the camp of the Philistines? We best check it out. Open it up. Let's make sure everything's still in there. Those tablets of stone, they need to still be in there. That budding staff of Aaron's, it still needs to be in there. Let's open it up and see. But what's the problem with that? God had been very clear. Do not touch this ark. Don't touch it. Don't open it. Oh, but we need to make sure it's all okay. Well, it's easy to do when you've disregarded the word of God to such a degree that even in circumstances like this, you really don't think it applies to you. Who are they to disregard God's word like that, which clearly said, don't touch it, and don't look inside of it. But Israel, along with its leaders, along with its priests, had already gotten to the place where they disregarded God's word so much, and they trivialized his glory. What's the big deal? Pop the hood. Let's make sure everything's okay. The greatest temptation for God's people and the greatest failure of God's people has always been and it will always be the trivialization and disregard for God. The disregard for God. His word, his holiness, his glory, and his authority. See, the problem wasn't just the priests. Much of the problem in the people has to do with the problem in the priests, but the problem wasn't just the priests, it was the people too. They had no regard for God. A whole generation had grown up in which there was no regard for the Lord. Like we've seen before, it doesn't mean they forgot the stories. They knew what the ark was. They knew about the deliverance from Egypt. They knew about crossing the Jordan. They knew about defeating the nations. They knew the stories. But they were no longer precious to their hearts. And they became information that was slowly leaking out of their brains instead of something that was warming their heart and their lives before the Lord and the purposes that God had for his people to be a light among the nations. Their lives had become unfruitful and ineffective. And these stories in 1 Samuel are a strong warning for you and I because the greatest temptation and the greatest failure for you and I along with Israel is the constant trivialization and disregard for God. His holiness, his glory, his word, and ultimately his authority. And when that happens, our lives, like Israel's, become ineffective and unfruitful for the glory of God and the purposes of God. It's exactly what Peter tells the church over in the New Testament. When he writes a, church, writes a letter to the church that's been scattered because of persecution. In 2 Peter chapter 1, just listen to what he says. Peter says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now listen to what Peter says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with Love, do we see that in the life of God's people so far? No, because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is possible for God's people to get to a place where they've trivialized God and disregarded God, who he is and what he's done to such a degree that their lives become ineffective and unfruitful. In verse 9, Peter says, For whoever lacks these qualities... What's going on here? What's happened? 
What's gotten Israel, what's gotten you, what's gotten me, what's gotten us to such a place where God can be so disregarded and so trivialized and our lives can, can look so ineffective and unfruitful for the purposes that he has for his people. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's not that information is leaking from your brain. It's not that you've forgotten the particulars about the cross, not that you've forgotten the particulars about God, not that you've forgotten the particulars about what he's done and who he's done. They just no longer warm your heart. They just no longer command your respect. They no longer delight your soul. It's always been the greatest temptation. It's always been the greatest failure of God's people to disregard and to trivialize God. And the writer of Hebrews, he has an encouragement for us though. I know God brings a a strong warning to his people, but he he brings a word of encouragement too. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 13. This is the reality for God's people. It's always been the biggest temptation, right? It always leads to the greatest failure. Listen to Hebrews chapter three. Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers. Hebrews 3.12. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Lest there grow in any of you An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, leading you to trivialize the living God, leading you to disregard, to treat with contempt the living God. Here's the encouragement. Exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, look at who he talks to. Look at who he directs this to. He directs it to each and every single one of us. It's not the responsibility of any one person in here or any one collection of people in here. It's the responsibility of the whole, of all of God's people. Encourage, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is why we do what we do. If you've ever wondered why we talk so much about what it means to be gospel-centered, about how we strive in everything we do and say and build to be gospel-centered, to be grace-driven, to be mission-minded. If you've ever wondered why we try to create environments that we create, why we do things like 3D groups, it's not because we want to create things. We're not looking to fill schedules. We're not looking to build programs. We're not looking to put on a show so that the outside world can look at us and go, look at all the things they do. How great a place that must be. No, we try to create these environments to do the very thing that God has called us to do so that we can exhort one another daily lest in any of us, in me, in you, in any of us, a heart grows up that becomes cold to the realities of the gospel, that we become deceived by our own sinfulness, that we get to the place where we find the people of God always getting to a place where they've trivialized and disregarded God. And while they can honor him with their mouths and tell all the stories, say all the verses, remember all the highlights, Nothing about his person or his work warms anything in our hearts. The gospel no longer captures our affections. When it no longer captures our attention, when we have trivialized God and his grace down to such a micro degree, a vacuum will be created in our soul. And those vacuums never stay empty for long. Something else will capture your affection. Something else will capture your attention. You will turn to something else for a sense of purpose, a sense of security, a sense of identity, that if I could only do that, have that, be that, 
whatever, then it's going to be okay. This has always been the greatest temptation and the greatest failure for God's people. The disregard for God. The disregard for his glory, the disregard for his grace. And here in 1 Samuel, the people of God have trivialized God and they've disregarded everything about God to such a degree that it's no sweat to now turn and look at God and say, we now reject your authority. We've rejected your authority in every other sphere of life. We've rejected your grace. We've rejected your holiness. We've rejected your power. It's no sweat to turn to God and say, let us now be like everybody else. We need a king. You've got a king. Not. And God has been disregarded and trivialized to such a degree, it is no sweat. No sweat to reject and disregard his rightful authority over, over your life. So God, look at what he does. Back to chapter 8. We had to get there. Back to chapter 8. God tells Samuel, give him a warning. Tell him what it's going to be like. Listen, buddy, it's not personal. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me just like they've always done. It's been this way since I rescued them. They have constantly sought to disregard my rule ever since the day I snatched them out of Egypt. Regardless of what I've done, how I've led, how I've cared, how I've provided, how I've fought, how I've fulfilled every promise, they never stop disregarding me. Listen, Samuel, it's not personal. It's me that they're disregarding. It's me they're rejecting. Just tell them what it's going to be like for them. And in verses 10 through 18, you get that picture of what's going to happen. You want to be like everybody else? Fine. You're going to be just like everybody else. You really think that's what you want? You want to be like everybody else? It looks so great, doesn't it? They've got a king who goes out and fights for them. How quickly we forget how quickly we forget. Fine, you want to be like everybody else? You're going to be just like everybody else. He's going to take your wives. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your stuff. All of it to serve his own ends. You want to be like everybody else? Fine. You're going to be just like everybody else. But you know what? You're going to be miserable. Congratulations. Congratulations. To Israel, they thought if we could just be like everybody else, then we'll finally be free. Freedom is going to be just like being everyone, like everyone else. Give us what we want. Just give us what we want, then we'll know what it is to actually be free. And Samuel seems to be saying just the opposite. Look, you get what you want. You're not going to be free. It's going to enslave you. You see, there was nothing inherently wrong with them having a king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God actually looks forward to this day and he gives them particular instructions about the king that they are to have. God has a particular king in mind for his people. Just let God give you the king that he has in mind for you. He gives them these particular instructions. Having a king in and of itself, it's not wrong. What's wrong is not necessarily what they want, but the motive behind why they want it. This is always the case with God's people. And this really is just the general anatomy of rebellion. Rebellion usually starts with wanting something that in and of itself is not wrong. Now, all of God's gifts to his people in creation, they're all gifts of grace. They're not wrong in and of themselves. It's generally why we actually want it. 
It's wanting these things for the wrong reasons. I mean, think back to the beginning of the story, back to the Garden of Eden. There's nothing inherently wrong with being wise and being like God. Remember back to the beginning of the story? Don't, don't eat from that tree. In that day, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. Nothing inherently wrong with being wise and being like God. Problem was, Eve wanted those things on her time and on her terms. No doubt, again, reading between the lines, no doubt, knowing what the story was saying and where God was going in time and his good purposes and by his glory and for his reasons, God would give them those very things. In his time, they would have those very things, but Eve wanted what she wanted when she wanted it. Israel's doing the very same thing. God's not saying it's wrong in of itself to have a king. It's the reason you want the king. That's the problem. You already have a king. A king who has rescued you. A king who has given himself to you. A king who has given you gracious and just rules and laws to order your life. A a king who has fought battles for you. A king who has brought you to a land that he had promised to you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You already have a king. One day, a day was coming when God knew he was going to give them the human king that they really needed. One who wouldn't win the decisive battles before his people with military victory, but with sacrifice. One who would use his own robe to wash their feet. But God's people wanted what God's people wanted, and they wanted it when they wanted it. What I need is what I want, and I want it right now. And it's no sweat for them because they've disregarded God to such a degree that it is so easy to be blinded, blinded to his constant authority and graciousness in the lives of his people. Let's get verse 19. Chapter 8, God gives them exactly what they want. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us. We can be like everybody else. That king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, right? And God said, obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go to your city. I don't know if these verses scare you or not. But in a healthy and holy way, they should. They should. And here's why. In our rebellion, in our sin, and just like Israel, we always assume that there will be a stopping point, don't we? There's always this moment of clarity. When we realize what we're doing, what we're wanting, what we're pursuing, what we're after, we always get these moments that come. And in our rebellion, we convince ourselves that we're going to be able to stop. There's going to be a time when it's just going to stop. We're going to grow out of it. We're going to get past it. We're going to grow up one day. We're going to get tired of it. There's always going to be a day when it's just going to stop And when it stops, God can come in and clean up the mess. But Here's the thing. God gives them just what they want. He gives them just what they want. The problem is what they want isn't what they need. Listen, when God gives you over 
to what your sinful heart desires. Listen to me. When God gives you over to what your sinful heart desires, it is not freedom. It very literally is a living hell. It's a living hell. When we see the same thing take place in the New Testament in the life of Jesus, Luke chapter 23, let me read this for you. Pilate called together the chief priests and the leaders of the people, and he said to them, you've brought me this man as one who subverts the people. But in fact, after, after examining him in your presence, I've found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll have him whipped and then release him. For according to the festival, he had to release someone to them. And they all cried out together. This is the voice of the people again. Think of 1 Samuel 8. And the people all cried out together, take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. In verse 20, Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed the people again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The third time, Pilate said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I've found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But the people kept up their pressure demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. Scariest, scariest verse I think I've read and thought about in a long time. Their voices won out. Their rebellion, Israel's rebellion, their rebellion in the face of Pilate, their rebellion is our rebellion. There there comes a point at which your rejection of the kingship of Jesus and your crying out, I don't want you to be king. I want to be king. I want to be like everybody else. I want something different. There comes a point in your rejection of God's rightful rule over your life in and through his son that he just gives you what you want. He just turns you over to the very thing that you want. He'll give you a king. He'll give you that thing you want. He'll let you run full long after that thing that you desire. He'll give you Barabbas. And it will destroy you. He gave them what they wanted, finally. He gave them a murderer. And he gave them the execution of his son to judge them for it. Here's why that's so crazy. God will hand you over to your sinful desires, and you'll just assume that he's flung wide the doors to paradise. He'll give you exactly what you want, and you'll just assume that his blessing must be all over it. And we'll see it play out in 1 Samuel with Saul as their king. It'll seem great. but They won't recognize they're actually under the judgment of God for their sin. It'll all seem great. They'll have a king. He's going to go fight. But in the end, he's going to leave them too. And he's going to destroy them. That's judgment, friends. And that's a living hell. Samuel says, I've warned you. God is going to give you exactly what you want. What a scary word of warning. What a scary word of judgment. But the voice of God echoes down through the centuries. And it says, you can have what you want. And you can assume that you're free. But hear me, you are far from it. That freedom you think you have, it's just an illusion. 
No, what you actually have is the wrong king altogether. You have a king that will lead you into everything you think you want, and in the end, he'll cause you to choke on it. I know the kind of king you need. I've always known the kind of king you need, one that could defeat more than just your political enemies. I've always known the kind of king you need, and I've always planned the kind, to give you the kind of king you need. And that's why God, in his wisdom and in his time, sends his son Jesus as an entirely different sort of king. As we read through the stories, Jesus comes, in a sense, like Samuel, as a prophet that's being rejected by God's people, as a king whose rightful rule is being rejected by God's people, spat upon, mocked, beaten, crucified. For our sins, not his own. But he's a different kind of king. Because he's not dead. Most backwards of victories I think I've ever heard of, Jesus, as our king, defeated our real enemies of Satan, sin, and death, publicly triumphing over them, publicly mocking them in his death for our sins on that cross, putting them, Paul said, to open shame. And God being satisfied with that sacrifice for our sins, him as our king, God raises him from the dead. And he seats him at his right hand where right now Jesus as our king is ruling and reigning over all things. That is our king. God has always known what we needed. God has always given us exactly what we needed. And here's the thing. You and I, we can follow the leadership of this king. We can follow the authority of this king. And when we follow the leadership of this king, we're led into forgiveness. We're led into redemption. We're led into wholeness. We're led into peace. But here's the thing. You first have to surrender your agendas. You've got to lay down that desire to be like everybody else, to be like all the other nations. You'll have to claim his blood for yourself. You'll have to claim his death for yourself. You'll have to claim his life for your life. You'll have to claim his cross for yourself and not just claim it, you're going to have to pick it up and you're going to have to carry it. And here's the thing, you're going to have to follow this king wherever he leads. God has always known exactly what his people needed. He's always promised to give his people exactly what they needed. And here's his warning. Just because you have what you think you want doesn't mean you really have what you need. God has given us exactly what we need in his son. The issue is we have to claim it for ourselves. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for your words that expose to us the realities of our heart the sinful ease and tendency we have to make much of ourselves and little of you, to trivialize you, to disregard you. Um, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit uh, would do work in our hearts this morning uh, and would cause us to see all of the places where we have begun or have gotten to a place where we have trivialized you and disregarded you, made you manageable, and we put ourselves on your throne. And I pray you would bring us to a place of repentance where we would accept your son, Jesus, as our king, and we would find delight in following his leadership. We ask this, Lord, for your glory 
and our joy. Amen.